Welcome to Revisiting the Vault, a podcast where we're looking at the history of art, animation, music, and just about everything, but through a Disney lens. This time it's the first half of our discussion of Fantasia from 1940. I am Mary Ratliff. I am a film nerd, documentary filmmaker, writer, social media coordinator. I have a lot of hats, and most of them involve the visual arts. And I am Gretchen Harwell. I am a fashion history enthusiast. I am married to a screenwriter, so that gives me no credentials whatsoever. I am a parent of a young child and also a vet tech, so those credentials make me an expert on all kinds of things. Since we did our episodes on Snow White and Pinocchio, we have found some new information. So if you want to run through that. Well, I was telling a friend about the project and I told her that Snow White looks like Betty Boop, an article that she found that said the very first renditions of Snow White, she was too, scare quotes here, sexy. And the picture Mm. of her was that she's showing a little ankle, but she was actually originally the OG Snow White was drawn by the same person who created Betty Boop. The interesting thing about Max Fleischer is he was the inventor of the rotoscope. That too. Which we have talked about how yes. he had it patented and Snow White was the first time anybody else had used it. So Right. Yeah, Disney cribbing a lot from that guy. Yes. And yes. apparently he was not appreciative. The other thing that this same friend of mine, she was on some blog and it has a whole section called Disturbing Disney. And it talks about how Pinocchio died because I know that we discussed in the last movie, you know, he's breathing and talking underwater and then somehow he's face down in a puddle and the assumption is that he drowned. Well, he supposedly died from the force of impact when Monstro rammed Hmm. him onto the beach. I mean, made out of wood. Makes sense. Yes. I didn't see any broken wood, but I can buy that. Yeah. If Monstro rammed him onto the beach... And I get it. I can buy that. I still think it's a little, it would have made sense for like him to have a crack. Maybe if that was what they were going for. And I think that is a much more logical explanation. It does work a lot better. Mm -hmm. I think they shouldn't have had the shot of him face down in the puddle. Right. I think that that shot should have been him like laying back on the beach on his back. Right. Perhaps with a crack you can see in his chest. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was too traumatic for the littles. It's already a traumatic movie, so I don't know. Right. But I think that that actually would have given us a little something. If that face down in the puddle just is like drowned, that's what that image says to people. Exactly. And if anybody who listened to that episode was gnashing their teeth being like, you idiots! We are sorry. Now we know. Right. Exactly. This is why you tell your friends about the crazy things that you're into, like going through the entire Disney animated catalog, whatever, it's fine. (laughs) This is our errata, show notes. Exactly. And that's the thing is that I think a lot of this actually, like as we're going, we're sort of, for example, finding out that Snow White wasn't put out on VHS until we were teenagers, probably being one of the reasons we weren't as familiar with it. You know, there's going to be things that we have these discussions and then we're like, I should Google that. Or, you know, you mention it to somebody. So I think there'll probably be things that we revisit. Okay. Speaking of things we've revisited. Segway. So the next movie in our catalog is Fantasia, which Mm -hmm. was released for the first time in November 13th, 1940, only a few months after Pinocchio. Right. Very soon on the heels, still in the throes of World War II. Still very bad timing. But... One interesting thing that we're just going to put a little asterisk at the beginning is that I know that I said we were not doing any of the live action animated hybrids. Yes. This is a cheat. (laughs) I apparently lied. This is our exception. I did remember that you had the orchestra a little bit and there was a little bit of a person in it, but I only remembered the animation really. And I was like, so it doesn't really count. And also I love Fantasia, so I wanted to do it. Right. There is way more live action in this Mm -hmm. and way more human than I remember. In your defense... Except for Deems Taylor, who is the MC of Mm -hmm. this whole movie, which to me, it's just bonkers to even think that you have a master of ceremonies for a movie. But we'll get into that. He is the only one whose face you can really even see. There's a little bit in the intermission. We'll get to it where you can actually see some of the musicians themselves and they're having a good time and you see their faces. But for the most part, nobody speaks except him. He's the only face you really see. Everyone's kind of in silhouette. Leopold Stokowski's in silhouette. I feel like we're kind of 
shoving it into our rules to make it fit. But I think it still fits because the orchestra, it is a critical part of it. But it's also like the way the movie is made, it makes sense to be able to see them for parts. Well, and I also think that like one of the reasons I didn't want to do the live action animated hybrids is because part of what interests me in this idea of this project is that look at the evolution of animation technique and storytelling Mm -hmm. technique, you know, how the art evolved. And I think Fantasia is a very important marker in that evolution Right. where I don't think that a lot of the other live action animated hybrids are. But Fantasia, again, like I said, I think that this does, even a few months after Pinocchio, we're still seeing extra leaps in the technology, new Mm -hmm. things that they're doing, things that they're perfecting and doing better. They're also, at this point, interestingly enough, playing with sound. Yes. By developing this thing, Fanta Sound, which I did not find a ton of information about. And maybe that's because I didn't really understand what I was reading for part of it. Because sound and sound design is not my forte. But it did sound like it was just a predecessor to what we're very used to as surround sound systems now. To a modern audience, Fanta Sound was probably nothing. We're so used to Atmos and Dolby and THX and all that. But... To the theatrical audiences in 1940, this actually was blowing their mind, and it was critically well-received that the sound was so such a great system. And one thing I will say, two parts of this point. Number one, it's a damn good thing they took this leap with sound, because this is a movie based around music. Mm-hmm. And secondly, one of the notes that I made was that the sound quality was leaps and bounds above at least Snow White. The way the orchestra sounds is paramount. It's the thing that you need right. to have working alongside the animation. This is a thing that really exemplifies, I, and I'm not going to get the exact quote correctly, but George Lucas goes on quite a bit in interviews about how film is 50% visual and 50% sound. And mm-hmm. so many visual artists just forget that 50% sound. Right. So I think that Fantasia really is a movie where you can say it is 50% sound and 50% visual. They leaned into it in a way that I really liked. They hired Leopold Stokowski who was the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. This is a big deal. One of the my handwritten notes that didn't make it into our shared note thing was just, you can't beat Philly. You cannot beat the Philadelphia Orchestra, especially in this time period, for their sound. You cannot beat Stokowski. This is like top notch. They could have had a studio orchestra and a studio orchestra conductor, and it would have been fine. But they went and spent the money on, just kidding, they didn't spend money on him. I guess Leopold Stokowski wanted to do it for free. But they brought in this guy who was a rock star. And it's just like, okay, they meant it. They invested, not money, into the sound big time. And good for them. That's one of the reasons that I like this movie. And I feel like it has such a place in Disney history is because this was something that when Walt Disney started on this, I mean, originally it sort of grew out of he was working on the Sorcerer's Apprentice just as a Mickey short. And then eventually it grew. But his original idea was, I want to do one of these every couple of years. Right. I want to do Fantasia as like a series about visualizing classical music. And I think that it gives you a sense of how important music was to Disney as a company and Disney as a man. Right. And that's something that when you look at Disney animation, Disney's not just famous for animation. Disney is famous for Disney songs. Right. I think that this is a place where you really see that he was out there with it. And I actually, like, in the beginning, when the MC says something about this new form of entertainment. Right. And I was just like, oh, God, I wish it had been. I kind of wish that I could see what what a world would have been and what else we would have had if we had had another Fantasia every couple years. Right. You know, it does eventually get a sequel in 2000, which we will get to. I think that that would have been fascinating. Sadly... This movie tanked. It did. And, you know, we can talk about this now, I guess, because I don't have a ton to say about it. But I wondered what it was. There's so many factors that went into why this movie flopped. Number Mm -hmm. one, there was a war going on. You may have heard about that. It was in the news a little bit. Right. I've heard it. I I don't know. Something happened. It was in Europe. Who knows? (laughs) But then also, this movie was long. Mm. So I looked it up. Casablanca, 1942, an hour and 42 minutes. This movie is close to a half hour longer than that one, and there is no dialogue to speak of. There's some instruction from Deems Taylor. Other than him, nobody's speaking in this movie. And so they were hoping that audiences would sign on to sitting still for two hours and six minutes Mm -hmm. in listening to music. Classical music. Classical music and watching it. It's not opera. It's not one cohesive story. It's episodic. 
And it wasn't even like Beethoven six is actually 40 something minutes long and they cut it in half. So it wasn't like you could even expect to hear your favorite piece. You know, you're going right. to, oh, like I love Beethoven six, but I don't get to listen to the whole thing. They had been doing the silly symphonies and things that was sort of their bread and butter before they went right. to features, but silly symphonies were all shorts. Right. And I don't remember what music they used for most of those. Some of it was originally composed for those pieces. I don't remember it being a lot of this style of classical music. Definitely not. It was much more like upbeat or faster because they were silly. That was the whole point. And so this kind of music wasn't really what they were known for. And I, I was reading some of the reviews and there was one where somebody was just like, I don't even know who this movie is for. And I agree. I kind of don't. I feel like that's a valid point. I love it, but I also don't know who it's for. Yeah. This is one of the things that I was reading about just before we started. RKO had an exclusive agreement with Disney to distribute their theatrical features. And RKO looked at the two hour and five minute runtime and they were like, mm, no, <laughs> nope. Yeah. No. We're not doing it. And so it actually was released with like a very different release structure. Mm -hmm. Already it was probably different than, than what we're used to now because I don't know how far they were along in breaking up the studios owning the movie theaters. They did it more, they called it a roadshow release where it was kind of more like musical theater where they did engagements in a city. Yeah. That lasted as long as they could keep selling tickets. And Disney, the company, paid for those. And Disney, the company, also was paying to upgrade to the Fantasound. Yeah. Fantasia would have made its money back from just production costs in its first six months or so. Barely. Like, it wouldn't have been super profitable, especially Hollywood accounting style. It never, it wasn't. But right. barely. But just the cost of that weird release meant that it did not make a profit until it was re-released in 1969, which was, I think, its fourth or fifth re-release. You have to think about, like, those road shows and stuff. You know, they would stay in a place for as long as they could sell tickets. Well, then they had to also be looking down the road, thinking about mm -hmm. the next place, upgrading the sound at the next place, doing all this stuff. Just the amount of expense that they put into just releasing it, just getting it out there. It was apparently by about, yeah, it was 1942 is what I was reading. In 1942... At this point, Disney, Walt Disney Studios, was broke. Right. Broker than broke. And RKO was like, well, you know, we can take over this release of Fantasia if you want. They insisted that they needed to edit it, that the runtime was still too long. They edited it down. Some of the releases, one of them was only an hour and 20 minutes. They just <laughs> got rid of entire sections. Yes. They were like, Deems Taylor, who needs him? Which I don't disagree with completely. But they chucked a lot of stuff. They chucked one of my favorite ones. So I'm just like, y'all are jerks. And they also were releasing it in mono. They gave up on the Fantasound at that point. I'm sure that was a cost-cutting measure, right? Yeah, it was. And and Disney himself agreed to it begrudgingly. He said he wouldn't edit it. They could edit it if they wanted to, but he wasn't going to be involved. Right. Only because at that point they were so broke. Because Pinocchio and Fantasia both being box office flops, critical success box office flops, in the same year, it almost killed Disney. Like, I mean, I don't think it can be overstated how close that studio came to dying in the early 40s. And unfortunately, Fantasia got the reputation as being the one that killed it. Right. Or almost did. Which is a shame. It's such a shame. And it's because because of that that they never did another one. It makes me sad. Right. Because I actually really love this movie. If we want to get into it, it's uneven. Let's be honest. Because it's episodic, it's uneven. Yes. But it has some things in it that are like indelible images. It has some things that were so influential, it's absurd. This movie actually is a huge touchstone for something that almost killed a studio, which I think is very, it's very interesting. It just takes you, you know, it makes you really kind of step back and look at the whole impact because in the immediate impact was like, this is terrible. This was a mistake. And they really didn't. I mean, they, you know, they kept trying to get its money, but they didn't try it again. For a long time. They didn't. This is the thing Hollywood does, and they still do it all the time. Right. Where instead of looking back and saying, what about this actually failed? And what about Fantasia actually failed was sort of, number one, it was 1940. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Number two, he did overspend in the first yeah. place. And then the release being the way that it was, was also a mistake. But then they look and they're like, instead, the lesson they learn is... Making animated movies to classical music is a bad idea. And it's like, that wasn't the bad idea. Right. The bad idea was some of the stuff that came later. 
Like, maybe you should have cut two pieces out of this one and put them in the next one. And funnily enough, I was reading Disney had a lot of pieces under consideration. He had the Pines mm -hmm. of Rome. He had all these other pieces. And I don't know if they would have been better or worse. I get the feeling it was just pieces of music he really liked. That was sort of how I started to feel about this. Because there were some of them where I was like, why did you pick this one? Right. It's not that I dislike it, but why this one? Stokowski, he heard. Because originally it was Sorcerer's Apprentice. And Stokowski was like, yes, let's do this. I'm going to work for free. And then as it kind of got more and more and more complicated, the problem is I cannot find the article that I found. I don't know where I found it. I don't know what rabbit hole <laughs> I was down, but it, it disappeared on me. You know, they were well into the process and they were like, Here's $80,000. And so it's 1940. $80,000, $1940 is a lot of dollars. And the thing is, I don't know if that went to Stokowski himself or if that was for him to hire his musicians. Mm. Because I know originally they brought him to Hollywood and he needed to work with some studio musicians and then he brought in some Philadelphia Orchestra musicians. There was a lot that happened. And I also don't know if it's true that they coughed up $80,000. That's just... Right. I know there was at least discussion about $80,000. Maybe they were like, please don't walk away. We need you. We've already got your silhouette. <laughs> we can't have right. a different person. He was so on board with the idea of Sorcerer's Apprentice and then some other pieces that he was like, yes, I want to do this. This is going to be amazing. And then I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know what happened, but. Well, it's interesting. So like when we talk about the critical reception and this is the thing where in my notes, I put, I don't know, this is going to be the first movie where we disagree. Yeah. Because yeah. your background is in music and mine is in visual arts. And so I'm looking at it and I'm like, the visuals, they're so amazing. But I was reading that the main criticisms, like what negative reviews there were at the time of its release, were actually for the music. Mm -hmm. And that people were, first of all, upset at some of the arranging, which is also, again, in my notes, I was like, I don't know what arranging means. Right. <laughs> but one of the other things was that some people were mad because they felt like classical music is just meant to be listened to. And by giving it visual I don't know what they were trying to say. I'm not entirely sure because I think they were trying to be snobs about it and like gatekeep it a little bit and be like, you're supposed to just sit and quietly listen to your gramophone records or whatever. That critique made me really mad because as I said, I'm a very visual person. And most of what I know of classical music is from watching ballet and dance. Mm -hmm. For me, when I'm listening to a classical music piece, it's just classical music and there's nothing around. I am putting visuals to it in my head right. at all times. And if it's a piece where I'm not getting a good mental picture of something, like that's when I don't like right. it. When I'm like, what does this music want me to do? What does it want me to see? I had a musicology teacher who would say, don't do violence to music. And what he meant was, don't watch TV while you're listening to music. Don't do all these other things. Don't play chess while you're listening to music. Don't do your sewing work, Gretchen, while you're listening to music. And he <laughs> meant, pay attention to it and appreciate it for the musical value on its own. And now, ballet music, it was written to accompany dance. It was written to be choreographed. Right. So if you look at the Nutcracker Suite, the Nutcracker Suite was not meant to just be listened to. No. No, that's exactly it. And Beethoven 6, you know, I mean, it's the pastoral symphony. I am mad about Beethoven 6's presence in this movie. I'll just <laughs> say that right now. But again, it's also like Toccata and Fugue is an organ piece. Let's just, let's dive in here and talk about Yeah, let's it. let's start with the, the first one. Let's talk about right. it. Okay. I don't have the composer's names written on here, so you're going to have this to throw is, that this in This is me. Bach. This is Bach. Okay. Toccata and Fugue is possibly Bach's best known piece. You had a thing in your notes about calling it absolute music. And mm. I, we'll just clear this up right now. That is just a categorization. Because at the, so there have been times in music history where music is meant to evoke certain things. There are times where, you know, like if you're talking about a bird, the musical run go up and, the, you know, that kind right, of thing. Right. That's not what was happening in this specific era of music. And with mm -hmm. this specific piece, this is music for music's sake. There's nothing else to it. So absolute music, it's that's all it means, is that it's not trying to convey imagery. That was terminology that was already in use that they're just using here. Exactly. This is just a category. Okay. It's just meant to be appreciated as music. They're not trying to make you picture falling leaves or violin bows or anything like that. And also, the part of probably why people were frustrated about the arrangements was that Toccata and Fugue is an organ piece. Bach wrote for organ. And so in this instance... You've got two hands playing the organ. There's usually, I don't know, four keyboards. There's a lot. And and two feet. <laughs> Organs are very complicated, honestly. Yeah. You have to distribute all four of those parts throughout the orchestra. So mm -hmm. people were probably pissed about this arrangement <laughs> because they distributed four 
organ lines of music to yeah. an orchestra. Or possibly they didn't like how it was distributed. I don't know whose arrangement this was. I really had no problem with it. I feel like they said it was Tchaikovsky. The His arrangement? Yeah, because I know him. one of the few things that I read was that he was a controversial figure in his time because he actually would do weird things with arrangements. Mm-hmm. And there were people that thought that that was overstepping. Meh. They're jerks. It's fine. I like reinventing things. Yeah. I mean, my teacher played, there's another uh, Bach piece called Chromatic Fantasia, and my teacher had an arrangement. I don't know if he did it. I don't think he did. I forget who did do it, though, but he had an arrangement that was for clarinet. And it's this really long, just solo clarinet thing that it was meant for organ. And it's fine. I love things like that. Not that it's sort of in the same league, but when you have something where it's a cappella version of some pop song. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. And just to hear how different it is. Right. Maybe it sucks. There are plenty of them where I'm just like, this is not good. It's sure. not, a, why did you even bother? But I love things where you're just, let's try it. Right. Let's see if it's any good. And sometimes it's great. And well, and sometimes it gets gimmicky. I think that's what yeah, that's annoys true. people. But again, it would be dumb to have a whole studio orchestra sitting there and then you hear organ. What was the point? So of course they transcribe that for orchestra. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. I had no problem with that. Maybe people didn't like his particular arrangement. Maybe he was overstepped. Maybe he needed to stay in his lane. I don't know. But whatever. I'm on board with that part. I think that the music itself, there were some places in it that now that I'm older and I know some of this music better, that <laughs> I noticed some weird stuff. And again, because this isn't my background. So like, if you plot me in a symphony concert, there is very little I'm going to recognize that's good or bad. Right. It's very much going to be the like, I had fun or I did not. Again, there were a few places that I thought were a little odd, specifically in the Nutcracker Suite, because that's the one I know really well. Yes. If we want to stick with Takata and Fugue, this one, I really loved this being the beginning, the way that they animated it. Yes. Because it served as a segue between the live action and the animation. Mm-hmm. I thought this segment would be really great to show kids in music classes yeah. to sort of get them to start understanding the layers of the music. As you're listening, here's what the violins are doing and you're sort of seeing it. And also, this is something that comes up in a couple of places in my notes. This feels like a early 2000s Winamp visualizer and I love that about it. Yes. And I will say it was Deems Taylor straight up says this is what might happen while you're paying attention. And then that's exactly mm-hmm. what happens. He's like, you, initially when you're hearing a piece of music, you might focus on the orchestra and then you might go to a landscape and then blah, 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 blah. And that's precisely what happens. The very first animations that you see are of bows. It is mm-hmm. a flash of a violin bow and then the bridge with the strings going over it. And then it gets more and more removed and it's all to really good effect. Yeah. And that is actually the one section where I think Deems Taylor's script is very good. Yes. The way he introduces this and how it works. That's the one place where I was like, yes, you did a good job there, my man or screenwriter who wrote that. Exactly. And I will also say this feels like as good a place as any to say it. I think it was really smart to use these pre-existing pieces of music that most people were probably at least a little bit familiar with. They were so smart to start the way they did. They introduce it and he's like, you know, you might focus on the orchestra. And they're like, oh, that's a bow. Oh, that's a bow. Oh, that's the bridge of a violin or a cello or whatever. And they go through it and it's just like, man, they played that safe, but they walked that line just right. And these were audiences that probably, I mean, I'm not going to say we're very familiar with going to orchestra concerts because there is always going to be that thing of (laughs) there were no orchestras in the area where I grew up, even in the 1940s. (laughs) Like that wasn't happening. But they are not audiences like us where there's a very small percentage of Americans who have been to an orchestra concert at all. Right. It was probably a more familiar environment to them at that time. And so using that as the way to sort of bridge into this experiment that they're doing. Most people have heard Takata and Few. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know the name of it. Most people have heard it. And so to start with like a pretty well-known piece in that, I mean, like, honestly, it is one of the most well-known instrumental pieces I'm pretty sure Bach died in 1650. So right. <laughs> I might have my dates wrong, but maybe it was 1750. I can't remember. But it's it's hundreds it's of like, years, though. Right, right. And so this piece is, has been around for a long time. Enough about that. Now that I'm thinking about it, probably was 1750. But whatever. Also, in such a short period of time, from Snow White to this movie, so three years, the sound quality and the recording technology came so mm-hmm. far. So much better. Yeah, I was reading some interesting stuff about the ways that they recorded it and what they had to go through to restore it. Honestly, I was falling down that rabbit hole five minutes before we started, so I couldn't go that far. Right. And that is something that is an issue. I mean, it's an issue with everything, with visual and auditory arts. 
not sure how, like what word I'd want to use to go with visual there. <laughs> but anyway, that's a thing it was, it was just art in general. And that's why we have this Library of Congress thing where right. every year they, they have a list of movies that are considered culturally significant, culturally or historically significant. So they got to preserve them. Yeah. The Library of Congress does that as a preservation thing, because then they get a print of it that they work on preserving because they have expert preservationists. And sound recording is the same way. Pretty much every type of sound recording equipment we have ever had, except I guess maybe if you did it on a clay pot <laughs> like right? with the scratches, but like the wax cylinders, the original wax cylinders, mm -hmm. records are very temperamental to heat and scratching and all of this. Right. And let's not get started on magnetic tape because that's a whole other thing. Everything we've ever had to record has things that are going to like deteriorate and decay. So I think that whatever they have done to restore this audio must have been a huge labor of love and it must have been very difficult. And I would just absolutely love to talk to those people. <laughs> right. For like well, three hours. I mean, another point to what you were saying, music's dimension is time. Mm -hmm. So even if you're watching Fantasia over and over and over again, there's always going to be something different because there's some other thing happening that you can't turn off. Rite of Spring is one of my favorite pieces. I could go to a hundred million performances and they're all going to be different because you cannot isolate just that thing and everything else that's happening. And so because it exists in time, everything's going to change anyway. And also we're going to get to Nutcracker stuff here in just a moment, but I noticed a lot of changes in Nutcracker. Mm -hmm. and part that's of the that one is, where I noticed the most. And part of it is because they didn't have to temper themselves for the dancers. The way we hear it, we hear it how it's you performed by modern orchestras and stuff because they are playing with a dancer in this one they're not they're the animation doesn't have any limitations no human limitations you know in that respect like timing and stuff you can make that leaf right. fall as fast as you need to and so anyway what i'm getting at is that like every time you hear this stuff your experience changes and so in addition you have old recordings that have changed and degraded with time it's a miracle it still sounds as good as it does frankly yes their restoration must have been like just so much work and then one last thing about Takata and Fugue I noticed that consistently when they are doing this animation the violins are animated in gold mm. and the lower mm -hmm. instruments pop up in red and purples I think that one of those animators was like oh the violin sounds like gold maybe it was a group decision I don't know but it was it's cool because it shows up over and over again there's so many times where it's gold it's a flash of gold or it's a shooting star and it's violin music and it's gold it's yeah. clarinet or bassoon or English horn music, and it's red. It was just cool. Well, and it does make me wonder, because, I mean, I said something, again, I went back to, the, like, the Winamp visualizer exactly. uh, metaphor a couple times, but I wonder how many of those, when they're coding those in the very beginning of making these in the 90s, when these things first started happening, how many of them, subconsciously or not, were pulling thoughts from this part yes. of Fantasia? Yes. How much of that, because it is something... I think that as an audience, we're very used to seeing now is something that the violins being in one color and this, you know, the bass is always represented this color right. or whatever. And how much of it had they absorbed? Right. And I think it's something that like we as a society are just fairly used to probably. Right. Not necessarily that particular set of colors. Although I actually think that they make perfect sense. So part of me is like, of course, that's what you do. But like violins obviously are gold. So the violinists agree. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they do. They do. <laughs> Uh, yeah. If we want to switch over to Nutcracker Suite. Let's, yeah, let's do it. Nutcracker Suite is a piece that I'm extremely familiar with because as mm -hmm. I said, I'm very used to watching this stuff with ballet. I mean, I just have to throw this out there because I had a real what moment with Mr. Taylor. Yeah. Where he's introducing the Nutcracker Suite where he said, it's not performed much nowadays. Right. And I was just like, I'm sorry. Excuse me, what? Right. Because now we think it's a staple. I grew up watching it every other year at Christmas. It's like at Christmas, yes. someone does the Nutcracker. Somebody, somewhere close to you is probably putting on the Nutcracker. Yes. I mean, so my husband and I both went to the School of the Arts that does it every single year. It's like a huge yeah. thing for them. The interesting thing to me was when I started to look it up, because I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm very confused by this. Mm -hmm. So what we're used to with the Nutcracker is the Ballantine staging of yep. it, which did not happen until the 50s. Yep. So this revival that got extraordinarily popular, that became this staple of all of our lives, or a lot of our lives. Post-Fantasia. It's post-Fantasia. And that is yep. blowing my mind. To put that in that timeline, 
of thinking that like because you feel like you know watching the nutcracker and listening to it like obviously it is it's an older piece of music it's an older ballet and so it feels like it in a lot of ways i think ballantine probably was leaning into that in some Mm -hmm. significant ways and so to think of the fact that it's actually only really been what we know of it today since the 50s it's surprising it's one of those things where you just don't realize that something that feels like a timeless tradition is actually really recent. In case anybody is interested in hearing this whole evolution of this piece, there is actually another podcast. It's Stuff You Missed in History Class. Mm. They have, I don't remember if it's a one or a two-parter, just all about uh, Nutcracker. How, so the next thing I think you're going to mention is that um, Tchaikovsky hated it. Right. And that is my next comment because yeah. I feel like that's a place where, you know, as much as they introduced Takata and Fugue well, I think they introduced Nutcracker terribly because, and maybe this is coming at it from a perspective of an, of an artist, but because he's like, oh, it's interesting how artists can be so wrong about their work because Tchaikovsky hated this piece, but it's his most popular one. First of all, he can hate it if he wants to hate it. Who knows why he hated it? I mean, I'm sure people, like historians do, it's probably in that podcast, why he hated it. But, you know, maybe he hated it because he didn't get paid. Maybe he hated it because people hated it when it first came out. Maybe he was just really tired and thought he could do better work. Like, there's a lot of reasons for someone to not enjoy something that they've made. Yes. Saying that he hated it doesn't mean that he thought it sucked. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But also saying that something's popular doesn't make it good. Exactly. I think it's good, but doesn't mean it was. I mean, McDonald's is popular. Right. Objectively, it's not good. Is Beethoven's most famous symphony his best one? Right. Is the Mozart that we know best actually the best? Like, yeah. you know, Shakespeare. The Shakespeare plays that we all know is Romeo and Juliet, and I think it's one of his worst. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. Don't at me. I hate that play. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, I think you're right. I, th- I think it's a very good point. I think think, if memory serves, I didn't go back and re-listen to that episode, but I think that a lot of his dislike stemmed from frustration and changes that were sort of forced on him or forced on the process. You have a very valid point. Whether he liked it or not doesn't make it right or wrong. And Mm -hmm. the fact that we, I mean, who knows, maybe Tchaikovsky is looking down at us all going, God, you idiots. There's so, you know what I mean? Like, who cares? He's dead. Well, and like, how many stories are there about popular music artists who are like, God, why do I have to play my hit, this hit that Mm -hmm. everybody loves? I hate the song. And maybe they loved it when they first did it. Maybe they wrote, oh, God, I mean, Fleetwood Mac, you could write. There probably are about five deep dive podcasts in the history of Fleetwood Mac. Right. I am sure several of them hate playing some of their most popular songs. Yes. It has nothing to do with whether or not the song is any good. You're right. You're exactly right. And there are those artists who are like, whatever, this song bought me my first seven houses. I'm going to sing it right. till the day I die. Like, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So I have this whole rant about what capital A art is. And my rant is that in order for something to become capital A art, what has to happen is the artist who is creating it needs to put a piece of their personal truth into the work. Mm -hmm. And then the audience who is appreciating it needs to pull a piece of their personal truth out of it. And so it's a dialogue. That piece of truth isn't necessarily the same. Right. You know, so when Tchaikovsky's writing it, maybe he's pulling this from like some sort of personal tragedy or whatever. Or maybe he's doing it because he's getting paid to. I think it was a contract job. Yeah. So he was just doing it because he was getting paid. He's putting a piece of his personal truth into it. The artist has to step back and acknowledge that the audience doesn't get to be told what to get out of it. Well, and it works both ways because sometimes it's like, oh, this is my best thing ever. And and somebody's like, oof, that was boring. I suspect that you and I have some differences of opinions coming up, not about this piece particularly, but in some of the upcoming bits. And it's going to be the mood I was in when I was watching it. And that kind of goes to what I was saying earlier about, you know, music's dimension being time. This is what it is. It holds true for artists too. Mm-hmm. They don't get to choose forever how their work is exhibited right. and interpreted. But anyway, so we're we're tangenting as artists are wont to do. <laughs> exactly. If we start going into the actual, like the way they did the Nutcracker Suite. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I commented on is that he starts out with saying there's nothing left of the Nutcracker but his name. And then a lot of it was extremely similar <laughs> to what you see if you're watching the Nutcracker Ballet. Just yes. done with flowers instead of humans. I felt like they could have been more imaginative. There were things I really loved about this. There were things that I loved about this animation and bits of it that I love. But I thought that they could have been more imaginative than they were. Mm -hmm. So we both ended up loving the color palette for the very first set of fairy images. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely beautiful. It had 
So many bold colors. And just the whole, the bright, really pretty bold colors with the super dark background, all of that stuff just, yeah. that drew me in, especially compared mm-hmm. to some of the later pieces, which we'll talk about. This one, I was just like, this is pretty. This is what I want to right. watch. The style of the way the fairies are being drawn. When they're flying, they then look like dragonflies. When you see them in flight, because their legs are a little bit straighter and they're they're flying out and they have these long, thin wings. They don't have fat butterfly wings. They have thin little fairy wings. Right. They really do look like dragonflies. And I thought, oh, that's kind of sweet, though, because then when you see a dragonfly, but when you see it from far away, it's like, oh, that could be a fairy. That, I like that. There's just something about that that's like, oh, that's really pretty. And the way dragonflies are so often iridescent, mm-hmm. they're not usually gold, like what these fairies, you know, a lot of them were silver and gold and kind of, you know, a platinum color. I just loved all of that because I was like, oh, this is what yeah. I want. This kind of animation, this is exactly what I want. I don't know that I would set it specifically to Nutcracker. You know, it starts out with, we would think of as Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, and they start out with fairies. This was a little bit of where I was like, oh, you know. Yep. But as much as I love the fairies, so I was like, okay with it there. And also, I love Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies, because like I commented in my notes, the very first film I ever made, my first production class in film school, I set to Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. Of course. And it had nothing to do with any of this, but it was just I was trying to find a piece of music I loved that had a good, like you could put a story to it very easily. And that's what this music was. So yeah, I love that. But then I've got, we have to transition. We have to take this on. The racist mushrooms. Racist mushrooms. What on earth? Why? How? How do you draw racist mushrooms? Why? So, and they do give a content warning specifically about the racism. About racial depictions. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, thank you. Finally. You know, I was expecting that to be about the pastoral symphony sequence, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. But then I'm just looking at these mushrooms. And so the Nutcracker, as a ballet, has come under some criticism. A lot of criticism. For the depiction, specifically in this particular section of the ballet, where there's just sort of dances of the world or whatever. Not at all. And they are very stereotyped. And in most productions, very racialized. And... Almost never danced by people of that race. Nope. Let's throw that in. I'm sitting here thinking like, hey, okay, fine. This is before the productions that we know and love and we're used to with this. But how do you go and you're doing something where you're saying like, the Nutcracker is not even in this. We're doing something new. We're putting visuals to music, just whatever we're thinking of as we hear this music. And Mm -hmm. you still hear this music and you think, I need to make sure that these mushrooms look like a Chinese stereotype. Oh, God. I know. It blows my mind. And I think actually that has been problematic from the word go with the Nutcracker. And I'm talking about from its original productions. Now, they didn't view it as a problem back then. But it has been a thing. I mean, especially the two places where I noticed it the most were that and then with the dandelions as the Cossack dancers. Yep, exactly. You guys are just doing the ballet, but with flowers. Yes. You could have done mm-hmm. so much more. You could have done something different. And the part with the fish. Yes. Oh, the fish. <laughs> we have fish yes. with eyelashes again. We have Another flirty one. fish. I don't remember in, in the Nutcracker Ballet, but it is done as like a veils kind of thing. Yeah. It's resonance with Salome is, I think, not unintentional. No, I think it's 100% intentional. So let's just talk about this. This looks like the Dance of the Seven Veils from Richard mm-hmm. Strauss's opera Salome. Uh, it was originally an Oscar Wilde play. came out in 1891. Oscar Wilde was arrested for indecency because of the Dance of the Seven Veils. In case anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, that dance is where Salome is trying to seduce Herod. Because he's like, what do you want? And she's like, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Right. And she strips. Yeah. And so this, that opera was released in 1905. It clearly made an impact. There were performers who were like, nope, not doing it. No decent woman would ever do such a thing. I mean, I can't even remember when I first heard people joking about the Dance of the Seven Veils as a strip right. piece. It's very much in the vernacular. I mean, maybe it it's is- not now, but it was. It totally was in then. In the 80s, yeah. It has to have been familiar to yeah. the audiences. It has. There's no way it wasn't. At least to some of them. You know, maybe yeah. not to the children who saw this. And so it's like, what 
is up with sexy fish? What is that? Why am I putting the word sexy and fish together? No. You know, when you look at those, especially those three pieces together. Yeah. You have three weird stereotypes Mm -hmm. that Disney has done. This is his third movie. And they've done all these at least once before already. In their features. Like, forget the shorts. They've probably done it in all the shorts, too. Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much the, the Cossack Dancers is actually considered, like, a racialized stereotype. I, that's not my area It's a expertise. cultural stereotype, for sure. And it's also, it is very reductive because it's also, like, there's, like, a little bit of a Turkish element to it. Mm-hmm. And the Russian element, and it's just <sighs> unnecessary. I know. They go through those, and I'm like, you could have done anything. Yeah, they look like bulbs of garlic. You know, mm-hmm. and their heads. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. Like, really? Really? But yeah. whatever. It was very strange. Yeah. Now, if we want to give them a little credit, I do want to note when they have the whole fish section, they do like a weird metallic sheen to yes. a lot of the stuff. I don't yes. know how they did it. Because they couldn't have, I mean, maybe they used metallic paint, but you would think that that would have been lost in the transfer somewhere. However, they did that shading to do that. Oh, man. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. the thing that sort of starts to irritate is you've got these fish with eyelashes trying to like seduce people. And it's, why? I don't, I don't, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Why, Disney, do you think that fish are seductive? I know. That sounds like you need therapy. Right, yeah. You should talk to someone about that. <laughs> Somebody. Something. It is still, there are still some really beautiful bits in it. The weird racist mushrooms. I don't see anything good about it. Other, than, I right. love that little piece of music. I think that music is wonderful, but there's nothing yeah, it's, there. It's just bonkers. It's just odd. Yeah, and I mean, I think the kind of metallic hints that you see it kind of takes me back to in pinocchio when the blue fairy comes down and she's translucent it's just like wow Mm -hmm. how do you do that that's nice and it's just it's a nice touch it's like the fairies when they go into the winter section Mm -hmm. and they're doing the frost and they're bringing the frost in as they're like skating across and how like it really reminded me of some of the things that they do in frozen yes and this is one of the things where i started to sort of see that fantasia is a mine that disney animators have gone back to again and again and again and again So many times. Even if you haven't seen Fantasia or whatever, this is like a granddaddy to a lot of things that came after. Right. Again, those the snowflake fairies, I think that section's beautiful. I love turning the section that's the waltz with the falling leaves. Yes, the waltz of the flowers. I think that's just beautiful. Funny thing to me, it's clearly set in autumn. There's falling leaves. There's milkweed fairies. I loved the milkweed fairies Mm -hmm. where they're just coming out of the pods and it's just, it looked exactly like milkweed blowing on the breeze. I loved Mm -hmm. it. This scene is in that happens in September, October, maybe August, depending on where you live, whatever. But there are fiddleheads. <laughs> I was like, I had, it is March. I live in the mountains in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It is March. I got fiddleheads in my yard right yeah. now. It is very much, there are so many things that they do where you're just thinking about how observant they were to draw yeah. these things so well oh, and how God. like with the falling leaves and the, the milkweed and everything where you're just like this is something that's taking the natural world that we live in and making it beautiful and magical yes. in a way that kids will take in and be like look at the falling leaves it's like the dancing it starts to make yeah. you appreciate these things but also they do not care about accuracy <laughs> nope. nope nope if nope. fiddleheads look cool they will have their fiddleheads yes and they do <laughs> look cool for me it's a distraction because i'm a nerd about right. that kind of thing. I'm oh like, yeah, oh. wait till we get wait till we get to the dinosaurs. <laughs> oh god, the dinosaurs. <laughs> We've got these these fairies. I think that this whole Nutcracker suite, like I said, this was the one where I noticed the most problems in the music, where I thought that the transitions felt clunky several times. Yes, and the transitions animation wise felt clunky, where it would just be like the fish swims past something. And now there's a waterfall because you just yep. sort of faded a little bit. Or it wasn't something where you felt, even if they're doing a thing about the seasons, it didn't feel like transitions. It didn't right. feel connected tissue. And yeah, musically, it just, there were several parts that just felt clunky, which just made me sad because this is, again, one of my favorite pieces of music. I think you're absolutely right. I like the Nutcracker, but having played it in a pit orchestra twice, it just gives you a different perspective. Like, right. I wouldn't probably want to play it again, but it is actually fun to be down there at least once Mm -hmm. or twice but i do think that some of those clunky transitions and some of it is just a little bit weird because because it had fallen out of favor they were working with a largely blank canvas as far as like well this is how this sounds they hadn't watched it every year at christmas time or played in the pit orchestra or any of those things and so they were like well this is we're just going to play this straight you know there was less necessary interpretation to keep up with choreography or anything like that it was just this is how we're doing it and it's done and nobody probably cared because they weren't familiar with it like we are i mean it would be a decade 
and several re-releases before this particular piece of music became popular again. Right. Or popular in that way. Well, so, clunky transitions. Let's go to the next one. Yes. This is where I first started to note that Mr. Deems Taylor, his ADR, by the way, mm-hmm. this might be why I dislike him. There's there's two reasons why I dislike him. Number one, mm-hmm. we'll get to in like half a second. But number two is his ADR was so bad. Yeah. It was badly recorded. It was badly synced to his mouth. I object and I am mad at it <laughs> because yeah. bad ADR is one of the things I hate the most. I will admit that I am more sensitive to it than a lot of my friends because I will notice it in movies and I'll be like, I can't even watch the scene. The ADR is so bad. Right. And my friends are like, what are you talking about? That obviously was not the sound they recorded on the day and they didn't even try to make it like that. Right. And that's what they did with Mr. Taylor here. He recorded it in a studio right up next to a microphone. Mm-hmm. They had him standing away from the camera in an orchestra pit and they expected it to sound the same and his mouth didn't match and I hate it. It's distracting. So for a movie that's about sound, they could have done better there. But yep. thing two, he would not shut up. <laughs> yes. And so... I think this is where we have to talk about his role, because mm-hmm. I agree that a lot of it was unnecessary. I don't think it was his choice. Yeah, he was almost certainly given a script. Yes, this was part of the conception of the movie from the start. And they have, when you read about this movie, he is described not as a narrator, but as a master of ceremonies. Which is Truthfully, strange. even at a classical music concert, you don't have an MC. This guy explains the entire yes. story. He does. A Sorcerer's Apprentice before they show it to us. And it made me so mad. I was cracking up reading your notes about it. And it is just, it's just weird. I think that maybe, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not defending it, but I think that maybe they were looking at it like, we're doing a thing that has not been done. We better prepare people. And I do wonder if they might have done some testing and test audiences. Yeah. And test audience has been like, what's going on? I don't yeah, understand. Like, what, f- what is this nightmare world? <laughs> Yeah, what is happening here? I think his over-explanations work sometimes. At the beginning, it's great. Yeah, at the beginning, he does really well. I don't really remember. Well, okay, we argued about what he said before Nutcracker, but he doesn't over-explain it. He just says something stupid, right? in my opinion. But he tells us everything that's about to happen in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. To me, that feels like they doubted their storytelling and that they doubted their animation and they didn't think we would understand it. Isn't the number one rule of filmmaking, storytelling, screenwriting, show it, don't say it. Show, don't tell. I mean, you may as well get it tattooed. It's absolutely show, don't tell, always. And the other thing is one of the things that they talk about in film school a lot. If it's not on the page, like on the film, when the audience goes to see it, it didn't happen. So it doesn't matter if you know the backstory that makes this make sense. If the audience doesn't think that it makes sense, they win. Case in point, how did Pinocchio die? Exactly. Exactly. And so when you have something, and I don't think the Sorcerer's Apprentice needs it, because I do think it is well done, well told. It gets the story across. I had questions about, like, what the heck is this chore that Mickey is having to do? Because it's stupid. Yeah. At the same time, it did evolve from the Silly Symphonies idea. So I can Mm -hmm. give it a little bit of, like, this this is the most cartoon of all of them in Fantasia. So I'll give it a lot of that leeway. Yeah. But yeah, you don't have to tell me any, like, you can tell me that The Sorcerer's Apprentice was originally composed as music that told a concrete story, because he had already mentioned there are types of music that are designed to tell a concrete story. This is a concrete story about a Sorcerer's Apprentice who doesn't want to do his chores. Take it away. That's exactly it. They could have just gone in with, remember those three types of music we talked about? This is this one. Done. So another thing that one of my professors in film school would have us do is whenever you wrote a script, you would also have to write a version that had no dialogue mm-hmm. because he wanted to prove to us that you don't need to, that you need to show, don't tell. That you right. shouldn't have your characters just saying everything. You know, when you look at The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is the most famous of all of the Fantasia pieces, The Sorcerer's Apprentice is well-loved and famous because you get it. You can see what's happening. You don't need any dialogue at all. No, because there is none and you still see what happened. You know exactly what happens. Like Mickey's face is expressive enough that you understand. I wrote in here where I'm like, I do not blame Sorcerer and Mickey one iota. Right. I want a broom to do my chores. Everybody that watches that is like, yeah, those having to carry those buckets is dumb. I yeah. would want help with that too. I, I would want to use magic to do that too. Absolutely. I would use magic. So like the questions that I have with it, are silly more than anything because it's right. like how long was mickey asleep that that thing was flooded yes who is this yin sid which by the way um for people who might not know the sorcerer's name is yin sid which is disney backwards is this it reminded me of the dumb things that you have 
people do when they're in training. Yeah. Like a snipe hunt or something like that. I was reading something today about a guy that worked in a restaurant and would tell new hires that they needed to mop the walk-in freezer <laughs> and that they had to do it with really, really hot water and do it really fast. <laughs> that is what the store felt like to me, where Yin yes. said was just, you have to carry buckets of water from this weird, is this a spring? Is this a fountain? Why does it have so much water in it? Right. Into this giant cauldron because Mr. Taylor has told us it's a cauldron. It looked to me like a pool, like it was another fountain. I don't know. Whatever. And I'm just like, get a hose. I mean, the fountain was up higher. You just right. need to siphon it. You're fine. Like, there are much easier ways to do this. I feel like he was torturing Mickey on purpose. Yeah, I feel like it was a, a dictator move. It was to show that he was in charge. I don't want to call it a morality tale. I don't know what I would call it. But, you know, right. where Mickey realizes this has gotten out of control. And so off screen, he hacks the heck out of that broom. And then, of course, the broom just, like, grows back. Like, all of the splinters grow into more brooms. And it just gets worse and worse and worse for him. Yes. The metaphor of it. Like, this is a lot of things to like here. Right. Even down to, like, okay, as much as I'm, like, <laughs> when I said Yen Sid is, is a total jerk, he is. He but is. But he still has that moment where he smiles behind Mickey's back. I mean, before he kicks him. But he smiles because he's just, like, yeah, this apprentice, he's fun. Right. It's a little character moment. It's tiny. But it's, it's like character. a kid. I like your style. Also, I loved, I, I mean, it's dumb, but I love it when he parts the seas. Yeah. He's like Moses in his, but he kind of looks like a dick while he's doing it. And it's just like, yeah, he's I'd super be mad. super annoyed too. I'd be like, God damn it. Let me part to seas. Yeah. This kid just flooded your workroom. Way to go, buddy. You know, he's just like, well, I'm so powerful. I can be like Moses and then part the seas. And he does. I mean, it's just one of those things that it's just like, nobody's not going to get that. So this was pre, this was before Charlton Heston right. parted the seas. This really felt like that scene, but yeah, it, it yeah. was before that. It's a visual that anybody who has ever read a book of Bible stories or gone to Sunday school even once right. is probably knows. So yeah. there, it's it's just great. And then also, like technology wise, the water effects. Yes, so good. just as good, if not better, than Pinocchio. Yeah, I feel like they were like, "Oh, this we we figured this part out. Let's do it again." They're like, "We know how this works. Do it. Why not?" You know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. I actually, I just think it works. It works really well. Yep. It's really great. It's a, it's no surprise that it was the first one they started on. One of the things I really, really remember about Fantasia is the moment where Mickey comes up in shadow and talks yes. to the conductor. I mean, it was such an indelible image that, like, I was actually surprised that it came randomly in the middle of the movie. And yeah. it was 10 seconds. It was very short. Yes. I really would like, this is one of the things where we're going to have to come back to it when I actually have time to look it up. I would love to look up the history of actually mixing animation and live action. Right. And how early that was in that where like right. you're mixing it in the same frame i would imagine that the way that they did it was probably they shot stakowski and then they put it the frames of that in the multiplane system and then put mickey on top probably and just did it that way more than likely which right now feels like oh yeah you know of course they did that but like it was 1940 exactly don't you think that when they went home they're like oh my god they're telling their spouse about it and they're like oh my gosh you have to hear about this amazing yeah. thing we're doing Mickey Mouse is going to shake Stokowski's hand. And the people were like, what? How are you going to do that? They have to have been so stoked about that. And like yeah. my inner nerd is like, get it, guys. Do it. I'm so excited. Like, I love it. And again, it's it's, it's just an indelible image. Yes. That I'm very surprised was so short. But huge impact. Yes. Huge. Yes. All right. I think it's actually time for our intermission now. So we'll be back in two weeks to tackle the Rite of Spring, the Pastoral Symphony, and the rest of Fantasia. Revisiting the Vault is a nine-hour films production, and it's edited by Mary Ratliff. Our music is by Music Motion and Lynn Publishing. We are not affiliated with or authorized by the Walt Disney Company. You can find us on Twitter at RevisitTheVault, and you can find our website at RevisitingTheVault.com. If you want to support us, the best thing that you can do is to tell other people about the show and make sure you leave a review in whatever app you're using to listen. We've got some fun new stuff up on Patreon right now, so you want to head over to patreon.com slash 9hourfilms to get all the info and sign up there. We really appreciate all your support. Thanks for listening.